Hmm. So I'm sure. Uh, wait for. Yeah, cell phones off, please. I'm sure that uh, you've all had a just a wonderful week. No trials, no stress, no struggles. Everything was perfect in your world. Everything was excellent. No headaches, no aggravations, right? Oh boy. I guess this message is for all of us this morning. So we're going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 through 8 this morning. And we're going to try to unpack what James meant when he's told us to count it all joy or consider it all joy. So you can follow along in the overhead with me and uh, hopefully we'll get done through most of this message today. So from the Word of God, just, just one side note here. Um, and I will never, and I know Dr. Carter will stand behind me with this, the most important, fundamentally the most important thing that should flow out of church, the number one thing that should flow out of any church is the faithful preaching and teaching of the scriptures. Every other ministry is subordinate and under is underneath that. When you take away the faithful expository preaching and teaching of the Word of God, it's nothing more than a social service. And as long as we're here, the most important thing that we're going to provide to you every week is the sound expository teaching of the Word of God because that is the final authority in all matters of life, truth, and practice. Amen? Amen. So, with that being said, I want to go into James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. You can follow along. Consider it all joy, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result. Pay attention, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing. <clears throat> but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But look at verse 6. Let him ask in faith without any doubting. Do we struggle with that, church? For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Boy, there's a lot there, isn't there? So let's look at slide three and four. Slide three first. And I put the Greek up there to make Dr. Carter happy so you can follow along. So look at the text there. Consider it all joy. Now, he doesn't say a little joy or just a little small amount. He uses the word there, pasan karan. Pasan meaning all joy. Count it or consider it. And he says, who's he talking to? My Adelphoi, my brethren. When you encounter, see that word encounter? Peripesote, encounter 
all kinds of various trials. You see that? Put up slide four. Now we'll look at that in the NLT. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. So let's make sure we, we understand. Here's the thing. We don't want to isolate. We want to, I don't want to take our 21st century thinking and jam it down the throat of the Bible to make it sound what we want to say. The question we need to say is, okay, well, what did James mean when James penned this some 2,000 years ago? What was going through his mind when this was happening? So let's define some words. That word joy, that's the word on. It means calm delight, being cheerful. James isn't saying some joy or just a little tiny bit of joy. He's using the word pasan, all, unmixed, whole, unmixed. Not joy mixed with anything else. Whole, unmixed joy, not with a lot of grief. Look at slide six. John MacArthur has something to say about this. Six and seven. MacArthur says this. To test whether a diamond is genuine or not, a jeweler will place a diamond in clear water, which will cause a real diamond to sparkle with brilliance. But an imitation stone, on the other hand, will have almost no sparkle at all. So when the two are placed side by side, even an untrained eye can tell the difference. Slide 7. In a similar way, even the world can notice a marked difference between a genuine Christian and only those who profess Christ. That's the question. Are, are, are we genuine? Are, are we given the imitation illusion of something, or are we genuine? As with the diamond, there's a notable difference in radiance, especially when people are undergoing difficult times. So church, how an individual handles all of the hardships of life when he or she is severely being tested reveals whether that faith is a living faith or a dead faith, whether it's genuine or you're just pretending. There's no, there's no mixing genuine, church, with imitation. You're either born again or you're not. So what does James mean when he uses that word trials? The word is periosmos. So when he's using the word trials, what James is thinking of is, <clears throat> something that is breaking the pattern of peace, comfort, or joy in an individual's life. Any of that happening to you lately? The verb form of this word parasmas has the idea of putting to the test. So question or slide eight. Here's the questions to ask ourselves. What does your faith reveal about you? Is your faith your pistisimon, your faith, is it a real faith or is it an imitation? Think about it this morning. When trouble breaks the pattern of peace in your life, how are you responding? The, the trials are the circumstances and conflicts and suffering and trouble that a believer will go through. And listen, we all know that trials are unpleasant. We know they're painful, and we know many of them can cut deep into the heart. But James puts it this way, and he's implying that when we're going through these trials, 
God is using those trials to test the strength of our faith. So is it real or is it an imitation? And when you're going through it, that's when you really find out, do I really trust this God that I say that I trust? Or am I just giving him lip service when things are going good and I got jingle in my pocket? Oh, you're a great God. And when things are really, really hitting you hard, you know, you have to ask yourself, do I really trust him? If I can't see his hand, do I trust his heart? Think for a moment about maybe an affliction or a trouble that you're going through right at this time, right now. Ask yourself, how am I responding to it? Am I, am I responding with anxiety and depression, anger, bitterness and rage? Maybe your marriage is in shambles. Maybe you're in financial ruin. But what do most people do when this happens? See, in our culture today, in this 21st century culture, we often attempt to do anything we can to make the pain go away, don't we? For a person who is anxious or full of anger, that common response is usually escape from fear. Fear is false expectations appearing real. Some will climb into a bottle. Others will find solace in an addiction to drugs. Well, some will end up having an extramarital affair, anything to numb the pain. But going to those extremes is actually a form of hedonism. Put up slide nine. What is hedonism? Hedonism today, which is just pervasive throughout our, soul, our culture, is pursuing pleasure and avoiding anxiety or pain at any cost. So when we look at this church this morning from this biblical perspective, it becomes very clear that this form of dealing with suffering and affliction is unrealistic. Why? We are all sinners living out each day in a fallen world. And we're children of the fall. Every one of us was born outside of the garden. This is a world that we're living in that is sinful and corrupt. And you just have to turn on the news for 15 minutes to see how devastatingly horrible our world is becoming. So afflictions on a believer in the scriptures are there to do something very important. They are there to point us to a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Unlike the drugs, the alcohol, the affairs, you and I who are true believers are taught to rest in the transforming power offered to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear me this morning. When the sensual things in this world become the tools in our toolbox to live out and deal with the afflictions, our life, our walk as believers begins to disintegrate into something which is not of God. It's not the bottle or Christ. It's Christ only. Slide 10. Paul Tripp says this, The glory of God leaves our consciousness as we start looking for relief in the land of idols. Now, Christ taught us and warned us that we would have tribulations in this world. Slide 11 and 12. What did Jesus say? These things I have spoken to you so that in me, not the booze, not the drugs, not the affection, all that stuff, in me, in Christ, you may have irene or peace. In the world, you have tribulation. 
but take courage. I have overcome the world. And that word overcome, you know that word overcome. Anybody own a pair of Nike sneakers ever? That Nike? That means victory. That's the word he uses there. Nike. There you go. You learned your Greek today. I'm proud of you. Slide 12. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Now here on earth, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The drug dealer didn't overcome the world. The bottle of booze didn't overcome the world. But Christ has overcome the world. Hear me this morning. Listen, while you're here on earth, you and I will never escape criticism. We're not going to ever escape frustration, disappointments. We're not going to escape physical pain or emotional pain, disease, or death while we're here on earth. Many have looked in the land of idols as an escape from this. But as with all false gods, they let you down. It's so amazing to see so much of Hollywood today. They're 80 and 90 years old. They still want to look like they're an Adonis at 30. Yeah, forget the fact that the Bible says, a, uh, you know, gray hair is a crown, you know. See, they, they, they promise freedom, but it always ends up delivering slavery. So then, having faith only when things are going well is really not a saving faith at all. It's just self-deception. God will use trials to wean us away from depending on worldly things. Never forget that, church. If you you don't have trouble, maybe, you know, he he loves you enough to do that. Because he wants you to depend on him. Amen? So it seems so often when a person accumulates more and more and more material possessions, they end up so often relying on those possessions when trials come instead of Christ. See, the trials do something really important for you and I. They expose and reveal what you and I really love. Ask yourself, what do you really love? Have you ever thought that? When when it gets really, really bad, our hearts become open and revealed. So the Lord uses trials to develop in you and I this ongoing, enduring strength, but not for our purposes, for His purposes. He's not a magic genie in a bottle where you get three wishes and he spits out millions of dollars. No, church. He he uses trials to develop this enduring strength, but for his purpose, his glory. So the worth of a soldier is not really known in times of peace, but rather on the battlefield. Are you on the battlefield, church? How do we sum that up? The more that we can rejoice in our trials the more we can realize they are not liabilities that we need the world to solve these problems for us. But church, these trials are privileges that are a benefit to us. And that's the opposite of the way the world thinks today. Amen? So, when we can face the trials with the right attitude that James asks us to face them with, we begin to discover the joy of growing closer and closer and closer to Yahweh, church, who is the real source of our joy. Ask yourself, do you have and have you experienced the joy of knowing Him? Think about that for a minute. Have you experienced the joy of knowing Him? Well, I don't know, Pastor Jack. He's way up there. You know, it's amazing. 
if they, people would just open their Bible. When you open your Bible and start reading it, God's talking to you. It, it can't be one-sided where you know, you're praying, give me this, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, you know, rub the genie three times. But when you open the scriptures, he begins to speak. And the Holy Spirit never works independently from the word as we've taught you. So the Holy Spirit's going to take that word and he's going to do something with it. Because it's a living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword word. Amen? Think through that, church. What would it be like to become completely sensitive to his presence in our lives? Where you sense him around you all the time. What would be different in your life if you said, you know what, I'm going to take the time to get in the word and develop the relationship. You know, when you're dating somebody, you are asking, you know, it's amazing. In the beginning, when, when a man's dating a woman, he slaps on the cologne, gets his hair slicked back, puts on his best clothes. The ladies, you know, all that. But, you know, it's amazing how amazing a man and a woman will stop talking and listen. Because they want to know more and more about their person's work for me. I have to shut up because my wife's right about everything. 30 years. Amen. So, but I want you to think about that. You know, God wants a conversation with you, but it's got to be two-sided. Amen? It's got to be two-sided. So, slide 13, let me ask you a question. What does your faith reveal about you? What does your faith reveal about you? Is, it, is, is your faith real, or is it imitation? And uh, slide 14, let's look at what does Warren Weirdsby, a great theologian, what does he say? Now, look at this. This is kind of deep, but don't miss this, church. Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, trials will upset us. Oh, there's a punch. Ouch. If we value comfort more than character, trials are going to upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will make us bitter, not better. Slide 15. Are we bitter or better? That's, that's the question he's asked. When the trials are coming, are you putting God on trial? If you love me, you are blah, 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 blah. You know, do we put him on trial? Do, do we... Hurl out accusations against him if things really aren't going the way we think they should be going. As if for some reason our little clayish finite minds are smarter than the very God that knit us in our mother's womb. See, trials does something else, church. It reveals where our allegiance is. Where's your allegiance? Is it to the paycheck? Is it to the house? the fancy car, the fancy clothes. Where's your allegiance at? Think about it. People that are around you long enough, what is, it, what is your life going to reveal to them where your allegiance is at? Well, it's getting quiet in here now, Dr. Carter. How about slide 16 and 17? So all this brings us over to here. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith, now this is for a believer, will produce endurance. And the NLT says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you 
Okay, James, what did you mean when you used that word know? The Greek word's gnoska. So the word knowing here, as is used in this text, has this, it's, it's not like just experience, you know, some knowledge in the background. No, this knowing here, this, it's much deeper. The gnosko is much deeper here. It, it's this full understanding of something that goes beyond something that is merely factual. It's a deep, deep understanding. And it's something that comes from personal experience. Have you experienced trials and have those trials grown you or are you bitter? What does he say that we should fully know and understand? Well, he tells us, slide 19, the testing of your faith will produce endurance. When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Slide 20, testing, as it is used here, has the idea more of proving the validity of something. Is your faith a valid faith or is it imitation? When you're going through a trial, church, ask yourself this question. When you're going through it, what is being proven in your life? What is being proven about your relationship with the very God that knit you and formed you in your mother's womb? When, when, when you have come to know about yourself through the trial, what have you come to know about yourself? What have you learned about yourself through the trial? What have you learned about your walk with God, if you even have one? Are, are you becoming aware of the things that you need to repent of and changing how you're living your life right now? I know that's tough, but ask yourself that. Are, are you becoming aware of the things you need to repent of, the metanoia, you, the, that change of direction? You know, I'm going down here to get to the drug dealer, but a change means, no, I'm not going to rely on that anymore. I'm going to rely on a person whose name is Christ. It's instead of going to the state store and sucking down the booze, numbing your skull, think it's going to make everything all right. You say, you know what? I'm not going to go to the bar or the state store. I'm going to spend time on my knees and get to know this God because, you know what? When I drop dead, I'm going to meet him. That's right. Amen. He says the testing of your faith produces endurance. What's being tested? Slide 21. Your faith. I love how the Heidelberg Confession defines faith. You know, every couple of years I like to share this. How does the Heidelberg Confession define it? It says this. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance that is created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. That out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not by ourselves, by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been forever made right with God, and have been granted salvation. That is an excellent definition of pistisomat or faith, church. So this testing or proving of your faith, which is your deep-rooted assurance, has been given to you by God the Holy Spirit, and it produces endurance. Endurance. Hupo anime. What does that mean, endurance? It means to persevere. It means bearing up under. 
You're bearing up. You're holding on under all of the pressure of the trial. Dictionary.com says the ability or strength to continue or last, especially despite fatigue, stress, or other adverse conditions. So your ability to last church, continue, and remain is tested or proven as you continue to trust in Christ despite the adverse and stressful conditions that you're going through right now. What is revealed about you and myself during these painful times? That's the thing. You know, what, when you're alone with God, Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to see that I'm not seeing right now about myself? What, 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 what is my response to the trials revealing about where I am with God? Where's it revealing? So the endurance spoken of here reveals a permanent inner quality which continues to increase each time a trial is endured. You get stronger and stronger and stronger and your faith grows because you know what? God's got it. He's got it, church. As I was thinking about endurance, my mind also had me reflecting on perseverance. Hear me this morning. This is important. And this should help us all. You and I are not, I repeat, are not the principal person in our perseverance. Because you and I are only able to persevere and endure through God's activity ongoing in our lives. Christ, Jesus, is the principal person in our perseverance. Where does it say that? I'm so glad you asked. Slide 23 and 24, Philippians 1, 6. Paul says this, I am confident of this very thing. Okay, what very thing, Paul? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the NLT says it this way, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus returns. Does that fire you up or what? Are you confident of that very thing? Has he begun a work in you? Have you come to a saving faith in Christ? If you were to drop dead today, do you know where you're going? Well, I'm not sure. Well, 1 John 5.13 says, These things were written that I may know how to have eternal life. So the scriptures were written so that I would know how to have eternal life. <clears throat> Slide 25. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. God does not merely initiate the work and then leave it. Look what he says here. God does not merely initiate the work and leave it. <clears throat> he continues with it. He leads us on, directing and manipulating our circumstances, restraining us at one time, urging us at another. Paul's whole conception of the church is that it is a place where God is working in the hearts of men and women. Slide 26. Do you sense the Lord working in your heart? Church, that's so important. Forgive me, I'm insignificant. Do you sense God the Holy Spirit, who's a person, not a force, working in your heart right now? Do you sense His presence in your life? Church, God's work is revealed in His will being played out in our lives. God's 
work is revealed and is playing out in our lives. Richard Phillips says this, slide 27. Being a Christian is not easy. God never said it would be easy. Persevering in faith, it requires something. Warfare with sin. Laboring in prayer. Plowing into God's word. And performing his will in the world. Not our will be done, but his will be done. So I told you, here's some questions. I ask these for myself. Do I find it easy to minimize the seriousness of sin in my life? Oh, got quiet again, Dr. Carter. Do I find it easy to minimize the seriousness? Oh, it's not that bad. God forgives me. Oh, yeah. What are some of the different disguises sin wears to make itself look more attractive to you? You ever thought about it? You are bombarded every day with advertisements and all kinds of ways to think and act and behave. You are bombarded every day. Here's the question. What are some of the different disguises that sin wears to make itself look more attractive to you? How... How do I lie to myself about the seriousness of sin? Very easy for a Christian to say, well, you know, God forgives me, so it's okay if I act that way. It's okay if I, have, if I sleep with this woman I'm not married to or this man I'm not married to. It's okay if I get drunk or I go to the bar with my friends. It's a good time. How do I lie to myself about the seriousness of sin? See, this teaches me that perseverance and endurance is riveted to holiness. You and I were called to live a life set apart. Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1 God forbid. Don't even consider it a thought. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.1. See a person who continues church, and this is important, a person who continues to choose to live an immoral life away from God will never truly persevere because they don't belong to the Lord. They can't know the Lord because they're dead in their sins and trespasses. They, they don't have any direction from the Lord, nor do they even want direction from the Lord. If you meet true unbelievers, they will hate you and persecute you for his name's sake. Because they don't want any direction from the Lord. They think the way the world is right now is the way it should be. That is not what the Bible teaches. James 1, 4, slide 29 and 30. James builds on this theme. He says, let this endurance have its perfect result so that you may perfect or teleo, matured and complete, lacking in nothing. And the NLT says on slide 30 this way. Let this endurance grow or let it grow. For when your endurance is fully matured, you will be perfect and complete, grown up, matured, complete, needing nothing. Can you imagine what that would be like for you and I if we continue to just cling to God's renewing work in our life? Since the scriptures are clear that God uses these trials to perfect us, let's look at what James means. James uses that word endurance. We've already learned what that word means, but that word perfect is the word teleos. That means something that has been fully developed and mature. Has your faith been fully developed in your life? He uses that word twice in this verse. And he also, he, he rivets the word with the Greek word for complete. 
holokoleras, meaning whole or the entirety. And then we have that word lacking. The word lacking here means literally to be destitute. Destitute. That you would be mature and complete, not destitute. It's important for us to understand these words so we can better understand what James is saying. So how do I surmise this for you? Since the words at the beginning of these verses are what we are called in the Greek present active words, present active words have the idea of it's a participle. You keep on going, keep on moving. It's not stationary. Present active means keep continuing, keeping on. Okay? So it would seem that James is teaching us to allow endurance to continue on to have its perfect result of bringing you and I into this maturity and wholeness in our faith so that no matter what the trials you and I are going through, we're not going to be destitute or in want of anything if our joy is centered completely in a person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us there. So it seems that patient endurance has a goal, and that is our maturity. Okay? Maturity. I want you to think about where you are in your walk with the Lord. Are you still a five to seven year old in your walk with the Lord? Maybe you've moved up to a young teenager in your walk with the Lord. Don't they need instruction from you and I? Right? Maybe you're a young adult. Don't we still need instruction? So think about where am I? Am I still down here as the five year old? Am I here as a 20 year old? Where, where am I in my maturity, in my walk with the Lord? That's the goal, maturity. Christ never will abandon you. Listen to this. Forget me, listen to this. Jesus the Christ will never, ever abandon you in your hour of need. Amen. Ever. Amen. This church is proof of it. It's been here 20 years this fall. And things can get very ticey and tight, and yet here we are. He will never abandon you in your hour of need. How about slide 32 and 33? Psalm 37, 7. What did David say? Rest or be still. Be quiet. <clears throat> in Yahweh. Wait patiently for him. You know, our sin can make us very impatient people, can it? Oh, boy. Rest means slow down, be still in Christ, in Yahweh. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of those that you see that are dead in their sins and they're prospering in all their ways. What profits a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? doesn't matter if he's a trillionaire or a gazillionaire. When he's dead without Christ, none of that's going to matter. Be still in Yahweh. Wait patiently. Don't be fretful because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. And the NLT says it this way. Be still in the presence of the Lord. Wait patiently for him to act. Man, what would be different in your life if we slow down and we patiently waited for him to act? Don't, don't worry about evil people who are prospering or fret about their wicked schemes. David's admonishing you and I literally to rest. Quiet your heart down. You know, 
there's a seismos, a storm in your heart. That's where we get that word earthquake from. These earthquakes, these seismoses in our heart. And, and, and we're, we're like, oh, no. But think about it. What would be different if we calmed our hearts and, you know, I'm going to trust him through all this and wait for him to act? Because he's the one that will direct my steps. Do not fret. Do, by the way, the do not fret there has the idea of don't get angry and fly off into this angered passion. Now, I know none of you ever had that happen because you're all mature believers. But um, when he says do not fret, literally in the Hebrew, the idea is stop getting angry and flying off the handle into this angered passion. When, when you see evil people prospering, you're like, God, why? You know, I've, I've, had, I've had people, like when I do counseling in my office, and they're like, you know, Dr. Applebach, uh, you know, this person over here, they, 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 they all this, that, and the other, and they got this, that, and the other, and, and, and we're scraping pennies over here. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, someday you're going to draw your last breath here. And you and I are going to be ushered, Second, uh, second Corinthians 5.10, we're going to stand at that beam of seat of God. And it's not going to be, well, I was a gazillionaire, I had a Lamborghini, I had a $5 million home and a swimming pool in the backyard. You know what? Those, those temporal things can be nice. But man, when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, all those things just seem to fade away, church. They're not important. Because if you're really in love with him, don't you want to serve him because you love him? If you love your husband, if you love your wife the way you're supposed to, don't you want to serve them? That's the model of the relationship there, the marriage. Isn't that amazing? So you don't have to fly off the handle and be angry. God's, God's not caught off card, I promise you. Don't worry, we're almost done. 18 more slides. No, I'm kidding. Almost done. All right, let's just do it. Let's see if we can get through this, and then we'll be done. So, uh, slide 34 and 35. But any of you, if you're lacking wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generous, generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And the NLT says it this way. If you need wisdom... Ask our generous God. He's going to give it to you. And listen, he's not going to rebuke you or insult you for asking. Now, at the very beginning when I started this, because I'm putting these sermons together for the book, I'm almost done. I, I tried to explain to us, what is wisdom? I don't know if you remember that from almost 10 months ago. What is wisdom? Wisdom. If a five-year-old or 10-year-old or 15-year-old came up to you and said, can you give me the working definition of the word wisdom, I want you to think about what you would say to that person that's genuinely asking you for that. Okay, lacking wisdom. So the Greek words are lipotesophias or sophias. Lack, again, meaning destitute, to be absent, not having. Wisdom, church, in the Hebrew actually means a skill or an expertise depending on how it's used. It can also mean insight or deep understanding. So wisdom is uh, literally the, the, the root form of it means skill. So wisdom is the skill that you develop to handle the word of God and bring it into your life so that you can live out kingdom life and you can glorify God and you can speak wisdom from God into the lives of people that are getting it from the television sets and the radio and Facebook and all the other garbage. And here's something to think about on a side note. 
it's going to continue to get really, really bad. With artificial intelligence happening, the guys that invented that in the UK are saying there's going to come a point where that's going to exceed us and could end up controlling us. Keep that in mind. You better be in your Bible because there's no, this appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. There's no second chance, church. So wisdom, skill, expertise, insight, deep understanding. That word ask is, again, is a present active, meaning we are to continue asking God for wisdom. Why? Because he gives to all generously and without reproach. The idea of reproach here is God's not going to reprimand you or insult you or criticize you or be abusive with you if you're asking him truly for wisdom. He's not going to criticize you. Why? God, church, not mankind, God is the one who supplies the wisdom we need and it's found in his word, church, in the word, in the word. I know we're beating it like a dead horse. Get into the word. What would be different in your life if you spent five minutes a day in the word? I threw this out many times before. Here's your challenge. It takes about two minutes, maybe three, to read an entire chapter of Proverbs. That's it. Even if it took five. If you read each chapter of Proverbs once a day, today's the fourth, you'd read Proverbs 4. Tomorrow's the fifth, you'd read Proverbs 5. Do you think about it? At the end of one year, you will have read every chapter 12 times. You can't sit there and tell me that's not going to change your life because it will. It will. I'm telling you what. Do you want to make decisions that are good decisions or do you want to make ones that are going to crush and destroy you? And here's the thing. It's not just you that gets crushed. It's the people around you. That's what happens with addictions. It's just not the one person that's, that's the addict. All the people that love that person get infected by that. So why in the world will we not want God's wisdom? Church, slide 37. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Yahweh with all of your heart. Stop leaning on your own understanding. And all your ways... Acknowledge him, and he's the one that's going to make your path straight. That word trust means to have confidence in and rely on. What is Solomon teaching his son in that there? He's saying, son, listen. He's saying, son, hear me, son. You are to place your confidence in and rely on God, my son, with all your heart. Because I want, son, I want you to have a deep reliance on Yahweh. Don't... Stop leaning on your own understanding as someone would lean on a broken crutch and fall, son. Your confidence is in this Israel covenant-keeping God. Son, in all your ways, son, in every aspect of your life, trust God. Rely on Him. Have confidence in Him. That's what he's telling his son. Here's a dad pleading with his boy. Listen, son. Don't make the mistakes I made growing up. Learn from me, son. That's my job as your daddy. He's the one that makes your path straight. So when we're going through the tough times of being tested, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, I can tell you we need God's wisdom more than we've ever needed before. Go home and read Matthew 24 today. Read Matthew 24 and tell me you don't need wisdom today. We're on the brink of destruction. We're so close we can taste it. You don't need seances, 
or palm readers or 1-900 Miss Cleo. You don't need psychics. You don't need uh, Jonathan Edwards crossing over. You don't need any of the garbage. Why do you want second-rate wisdom systems when you got the very God's Word right there in front of you? All you need is true wisdom that comes from Yahweh. And you find it in the Scriptures. If you learn anything while this church is still here, I'm begging you, Dr. Carter's begging you, get into the Word. Get a study Bible. Get into the Word. Listen, we have Bible studies here on Mondays, Thursdays. We have a woman's group with Andy Tuesday nights. There's no excuse. You're not going to be able to say, well, God, I didn't know. Well, he's going to say, well, wait a minute. Weren't you at Apostle? Well, wait, isn't there something there Monday? Wasn't there something there Thursday? Oh, doesn't Andy have something there on Tuesday nights? Hello, McFly. Hello. He's concerned with each of us learning what he wants us to learn from the trials. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. I could keep going. I'll finish this up next week. Where are you with your walk? Do, do, do you know him? Where are you with your walk with the Lord? If, if somebody came up to you and they said, hey, so-and-so, they came up to you and said, listen, I just heard devastating news. Well, what's the devastating news? I have an incurable disease. The doctor's given me about six weeks, told me to get my affairs in order. And so-and-so, I don't know where I'm going when I die. What do I need to do to be saved? What would you tell them? Think about it. What would you tell them? If they ask you, what do I need? They know they're going to die. It's not a question. And here's the thing. All of us were born terminal. Remember that. Every one of you, the moment you were born, you were born terminal. What would you say to the person if they ask you that question? What do I need to do to be saved? Who, if they ask you this question, who, who is this Jesus? Who is he? What has he done? Tell me about him. Do you have enough time in the Word to really explain to them who Jesus Christ is? If you don't, something's wrong. If you can tell me what your favorite movie is that you've watched 10,000 times on television, you know, but you can't sit there and tell me about how you're going to be, how a person can come to saving faith in Christ. I want you to think through that. Who told you? You know, it took me 35 years before I finally came to watching my mom and dad die in front of me to get saved. What about you? What about you? What would they say to you? If they asked the question, what would you repeat back to them? Who is this Jesus, this eternal Son of God, that condescended, came down in human flesh, became a man and dwelt among us, humbled himself, setting aside all of his privileges to live a sinless life? And here's the question. Do you love him for that? You can love him because he first loved you. Don't sit there and rob yourself and go on a starvation diet when it comes to the Word of God. I want to encourage you. The homosexual movement is pervading. It is a clear attack on the sovereignty of God. If you read Romans 1.18, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. We are in the last days, church. He could come now at any time. Are you going to be ready? What will you be doing? Are you going to be sitting out on high street doing nothing with your life? What are you going to be doing when he, if he comes? What will you be? Will you be serving him? 
I know these are tough questions, but this is a tough time in our world. And, and I, you know, we're, we, we got threats of nuclear war like you wouldn't even imagine right now. It's really getting dicey out there. Yahweh could come at any time and call us home. Will you be left behind or will you be pulled up? So what does it mean to be saved? One, you confess your sins. You come clean with God. First of all, that's for your benefit, not him. God already knew all the sin you would commit before he knit you in your mother's womb. You confess your sins. And you transfer in trusting in the world or something else to trusting completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. He was beaten unmercifully for you, church. Punched in the face, beard ripped out, a flagellum across his back, shredding his skin till his spine was exposed, carrying a big wooden beam up a hill to Golgotha, nails going through his wrists and his feet, bleeding and taking the full anger that our sins produced from the Father, punishing the Son for you and I. I don't deserve it. I should be rotting in hell like a worm. But he loved me enough that he took every rotten, sinful, filthy thing I ever did. All the worst about John Applebach was placed on Jesus. And all the best about Jesus was placed on John Applebach. The same for you, too, if you trust in him. The worst about you goes on him. The best about him goes on you. And you trust him as your Savior. And if He, the Holy Spirit indwells you, He's going to start to change you, but don't rob yourself and go on a diet when it comes to the Word of God. I'm pleading with you. Be here Monday nights. Be here Thursdays. Be here with the woman's ministry. Grow. Grow, church. Now look up and receive God's blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shake hands, meet and greet.